to listen to Vipin Durang, one of the countries, one of the world's uh, biggest experts on nuclear proliferation. <laughs> <laughs> Remarkably, yeah, modest. my mom doesn't think that. <laughs> no comment. Uh, he is an associate professor of political science at MIT. Uh, he got his PhD from Harvard. He has a BS and MS in chemical engineering and distinction from Stanford. And he's got an MPhil for good measure from Oxford. He's been a, a fellow at Harvard, a fellow at Harvard, and a fellow at Stanford. He's got a book, uh, Nuclear Strategy in the Modern Era, out from Princeton in 2014. His second book, Strategies of Nuclear Proliferation, is under contract at Princeton. He's published in International Security, Journal of Conflict Resolution, International Organization, so he is uh, remarkably prepared to give us a stunning talk. Yeah. So let's welcome uh, Thanks for having me, Dan, Mike. It's a real pleasure to be here at Notre Dame. Uh, I went to an all-boys Jesuit high school, so I have PTSD when I walk around the campus. Uh, no, it's a real pleasure to be here, and thanks for coming today. Uh, and thanks for the kind introduction. Uh, so normally I would say the whole point of this talk is about managing expectations with North Korea. So let me keep your expectations low. This is a crisis we've been dealing with for a quarter century. It's a crisis we are going to periodically be dealing with, uh, I think, regularly for the years to come. And this is kind of a hybrid talk. Uh, this isn't like my pure academic research, but it kind of plugs into a lot of research that I've done over the years on nuclear strategy, nuclear proliferation, U.S. non-proliferation policy, and it's North Korea and everybody's been talking about North Korea for the last two years. So I thought it'd be fun to just walk through where we are with North Korea, how we got here, where we can go, open it up, uh, maybe you guys have some great ideas that we can channel to the Trump administration uh, when he meets Kim Jong-un, his lover, for the third time. <laughs> so basically, uh, I'm going to start with how we got here in the first place. North Korea is a nuclear weapon state. So North Korea is the first adversarial state of the United States to acquire nuclear weapons since who? Who knows? Well, France, France, was, France was number two. Who, <laughs> we, I could go on about France forever. Enemy regime. The French, unbelievable, yeah. They were the worst proliferators in the world. I think it was China. China, 1964. So basically 50 years without an adversarial state acquiring nuclear weapons until North Korea. A lot of U.S. non-proliferation policy in the post-Cold War era was designed to stop adversarial states from getting nuclear weapons. Iraq, Libya, the Israelis bombed a Syrian reactor. We can debate goals. You get one question. Whether the, Syri whether the Syrian reactor was a new, I mean, we can get into all the technical <laughs> details. But the US policy, what I call the second nuclear era in a lot of ways in the post-Cold War era was the US is trying to stop states from acquiring nuclear weapons and invaded some of these countries to stop them from doing so. North Korea is the one that got out of the barn. And no one really gave North Korea a chance. Academic theories didn't give North Korea a lot of chance to get nuclear weapons, right? In a great book by Alex Debs and Nuna Montero, they argue that in general, preventive war, the threat of preventive war should have stopped North Korea from getting nuclear weapons. One problem is that North Korea has a deterrent against South Korea, the artillery shelling it can do against Seoul and USFK alone, K-1 
can deter the preventive attack itself. The other big piece of this is that North Korea, uh, f North Korea was at points deterred by U.S. military action. They were scared in 1994, right before the agreed framework was signed, that the United States was going to strike North Korea. So there was a credible threat of preventive war against North Korea. It just didn't stop them. Other research in political science by Malford Brout Heghammer, great book called Unclear Physics, just came out on Libya and Iraq. Jacques Hyman's argued that the type of regime, the neo-patrimonial regime that North Korea has, makes it much more difficult for them to get nuclear weapons programs off the ground and manage them. Saddam's Iraq failed. Gaddafi's Libya failed. But North Korea, for, for Jacques Hyman's in particular, I went to grad school with Jacques, so I can make fun of him. But he says North Korea was gonna, is, is kind of the poster boy of a state that can't get its act together. And he called the 2006 nuclear weapons test a joke. But a decade later, here we are. So how did North Korea get out of the barn? In an article I wrote two years ago in International Security, I put North Korea under the category of sheltered pursuit. Yes, there was the threat of preventive war, but it didn't deter North Korea because A, it could hold American forces and South Korea at risk, our formal ally, but it also had patron states, particularly China and the Soviet Union, which made it much more difficult to make the, th the threat of credible preventive war against North Korea the threat of preventive war against North Korea credible because it might draw China into a great power conflict with the United States. So what do you do when a state gets out of the barn? Another central question that we're faced with is, okay, so North Korea may not be the last adversarial state that gets nuclear weapons, right? But he, so here we're dealing with a policy problem and an academic problem that we haven't had to deal with for almost 50 years, more than 50 years. So North Korea gets out of the barn, and now we're faced with a problem. 2006, they test their first nuclear weapon. 2017 is a real period, and I'll go through kind of the chronology, but just setting up the, the, the fundamental academic and policy problems. So you have a state that gets out of the barn, and now, okay, can you deter nuclear North Korea? And there are two basic views on this. The optimistic view is that North Korea is a rational state, it responds to costs and benefits and threats and punishments. It wanted regime insurance, and it wanted insurance against uh, an attempt to denuclear, disarm it, and it got it. And it wants to use its nuclear weapons potentially offensively for political purposes. So if you're North Korea, you now have nuclear weapons. We're going to talk about kind of the political offensive theory that North Korea has. What do you want to do offensively? Anyone? What is a first thing you want to do politically, not necessarily militarily with nuclear. Now you have nuclear weapons, you can hold the U.S. homeland plausibly at risk. What is your first aim politically? Anyone? At, at least to peel off South Korea from the United States, right? It's called alliance decoupling. So there's no doubt that North Korea wants to rip off the South Korean alliance from the United States. Well, a lot of ways we're ripping it apart ourselves. The pessimistic view is Kim Jong-un is not rational. He's crazy. It's what we said about Mao Zedong. China can't be trusted with nuclear weapons. Here, there's a theory that North Korea will use nuclear weapons offensively to reunite the peninsula. There are models out there like Pakistan using a nuclear umbrella or a nuclear shield to aggress against South Korea and the United States. 
and deterring the retaliation, salami slicing, making fait accomplis. But the difference between Pakistan and North Korea is Pakistan can do it on hill peaks in the Himalayas and Jammu and Kashmir. Has anyone been to the DMZ? It's not the easiest thing to militarily salami slice down against USFK and ROK. So the military theory about how North Korea is crazy and will salami slice and use nuclear weapons to deter retaliation uh, is there isn't a lot of support for it. Another argument is that North Korea will use nuclear weapons to be more aggressive shooting at American aircraft. But Kim Jong-un and Kim, Kim, Kim Jong-il did this before they had nuclear weapons also. So maybe some of that gets priced in already. The question is whether they'll, North Korea will do it more now that it has nuclear weapons than it did before it had nuclear weapons. There's no evidence to support it yet. So far, Kim Jong-un has shown that he's anything but irrational. And I'll walk through the case to show, you know, he's actually responded very cleverly and cunningly to uh, incentives and threats of punishment, ratcheted down tensions when things got too hot, pushed the line when he was able to. So there's no evidence that he's, he's crazy. There is the concern that you can get miscalculation. Kim Jong-un might think the cavalry's coming if it's not, and then he would be rational potentially you know, to use nuclear weapons. But in a bolt out of the blue strike, I find that difficult to believe. So I personally believe, and we can talk about this at the end, North Korea can be deterred. You have to manage misperception and miscalculation. But the problem with deterrence is it works both ways. The reason why the United States has opposed proliferation, both among allies and adversaries. We didn't want the French to get nuclear weapons. We oppose the French program. Why? Well, because they're the French. And nobody wants the French to have nuclear weapons. Because they act all French about it. But there's a strategic reason, too. We don't want South Korea and Japan to acquire nuclear weapons for the same reason we oppose the, the French. And we basically subjugate the British. If anybody is curious, about the British nuclear program. There's nothing very British about the, nuclear, the British nuclear weapons program except the fissile material. Everything else is American. And we coordinate deterrent patrols with the British. The French got their own nuclear weapons because they were worried about whether the US would stand and fight in the event of a Soviet invasion of Western Europe. And the concern was whether we would trade Paris for Pittsburgh once the Soviet Union could hold the US homeland at risk. And you can kind of preview where this is going with Japan and South Korea, right? Would, Seoul had, may have reason to worry, as soon as North Korea can hold the U.S. homeland at risk, will we trade Seoul for San Francisco? Or Tokyo for Toledo? I've never been to Toledo, but I assume we wouldn't trade Tokyo for Toledo. But with the Allies, we don't want them acquiring nuclear weapons because the U.S. wants to be able to control use and escalation itself. It does not want anyone else's finger on the proverbial button. We don't want to have to finish somebody else's nuclear war. So extended deterrence has been one of the best non-proliferation tools in the U.S. policy inventory. So we oppose proliferation by the allies, and we definitely oppose proliferation by adversaries. Why? Because we want the freedom to potentially invade them if we, or change the regime if we want to. There are states in the middle. Anyone want to talk about states in the middle that we've kind of turned a blind eye to in a lot of ways? Uh, Israel and Pakistan are two of them. But for the most part, North Korea is clearly, at, we, have, we don't have a peace treaty after the Korean War. We have an armistice. We oppose North Korean nuclear weapons. So what happens when a horse gets out of the barn? And this is kind of the story of North Korea, right? So what is, 
how did North Korea get here? Why is 2017 so important? What has it done with its nuclear weapons in the interim? How has US policy responded to it? And where do we go after the failure at Hanoi? All right, so disco ball. Whoa, wrong one. I meant the laser pointer. Okay, this is the proverbial disco. This is where we stood at the beginning of 27, spring 2017. Kim Jong-un was derided by both China and Americans and South Koreans, a little fatty, right? Kim Jong-il's young, inexperienced son, and he had kind of become a hermit. He distanced himself from Beijing. Remember, he killed his uncle, and on Valentine's Day 2017, 2017 assassinated his half-brother, who was a liaison to Beijing, with VX at a major international airport with kids around. This is the Kim Jong-un we had in early 2017, and the only picture they had released about their nuclear weapons program was this one. What is this? Anyone know? A mock-up of? Very simple implosion device. Uranium, plutonium, we don't know, but this is very clearly the explosive lenses and the spherical shape, and you've got the detonator. It's clearly a mock-up because you wouldn't want to stand next to it if it was real. But the North Koreans are great about releasing these pictures to signal what they have in their inventory. In 2006, North Korea conducted an underground test at Bungeri, their test site, which to this day, there are debates about whether it went critical. And it was derided as a joke. But over time, North Korea conducted several more nuclear tests under both Kim Jong-il and then Kim Jong-un. And by the end of 2017, the nuclear program was no longer a joke. But this is where we stood. Simple fission device in the beginning of 2017. And he's standing in front of, people often look at disco ball, but he's also standing in front of a long-range missile. The North Koreans are very careful about the pictures they release. They're trying to signal something with everything in the picture. And then in, er, in spring 2017, North Korea starts a flurry of missile tests. And North Korea had been quiet for a long time, but it seems like, technically, a lot of things clicked at exactly the right moment for North Korea in 2017. It's probably no coincidence that it was shortly after President Trump took office. Because I think there was a real fear in North Korea, if I'm just looking back and trying to impose a theory on the data we saw, Trump gets elected, and Kim Jong-un had been afraid of an Obama strike, actually. I think there was probably intelligence in North Korea that President Obama had seriously considered striking North Korea and chose, actually, instead, I think, to focus on Iran rather than North Korea and get the JCPOA. And the assessment on what, how many North Korean nuclear weapons could you actually destroy if you went in a first strike against North, or a preventive war against North Korea, turned out the answer is you're still going to miss about 20% of the known capabilities. And that doesn't cover the unknown and covert facilities or weapons. So I, the th my theory is Kim Jong-un saw Trump coming into office and Trump being erratic was he was probably actually reasonably afraid that, North, that the U.S. might attempt to preventively attack him or remove his regime. Now in the campaign, President Trump had a lot of rhetoric that would give Kim Jong-un ample reason to fear that. And it seems like the missile program and the nuclear program were accelerated right around this time. And so we've got a flurry of activity in 2017. This is a medium-range missile the North Koreans tested. The theory here is, okay, 
initially at this point you've got a fission device and you've got medium and interrange ballistic missiles that can hold at risk basically targets in the region. Right? So what's your theory of nuclear use if you're North Korea facing a much superior, your conventionally superior uh, US, FK, and South Korean forces and a nuclear superior United States? Right? You need nuclear weapons to offset American conventional superiority, basically, right? So what are you going to do? What is your first use of nuclear weapons? Anyone know what in the North Korea's envision? And they signal this with the map. They've released maps of doom, we call them, maps of death, with targets on the maps. So if you're North Korea, what's your rational strategy here? You can't stand up and fight conventionally for too long. Now you've got a fission device, 20 kilotons, and you've got missiles that can target most of the theater. What do you do? Right. You have to slow down the cavalry somehow, right? Guam, Anderson Air Force Base is where we stage most of our assets in the region. It would be central to a war against North Korea. Targets in Japan. North Korea hates Japan. They reserve more vituperation for Japan than they do for any other country in the world, including the United States. We've got bases in Okinawa, Yokosuka, all over Japan. So if you're trying to slow down the United States, a fission device on Guam and bases in Japan might actually slow you down. Now, there's some evidence that U.S. bases in South Korea may have been targeted, but there's also evidence to suggest that North Koreans won't use nuclear weapons on the peninsula against fellow Koreans. They don't know. But it may not be relevant because Guam, Anderson, and the U.S. bases in Japan alone would at least signal to the United States. We talk about the French. This is a very French strategy, a pre-strategic strike with military effects to slow down. If you're France trying to actually slow down the Soviet Union, who is conventionally superior and has nuclear superiority, how do you make that strategy credible? Well, the North Koreans actually have taken the strategy. At first, I made the mistake of saying this is like Pakistan because I studied South Asia first. I actually think it's more French. A pre-strategic strike to signal resolve that you're willing to escalate to the strategic level before you hit the US homeland. The first strike would not be on the US homeland. It would be in the theater with, uh, as a signal to the United States, but also have a military effect to slow down the conventional assault. But then the problem is, how do you deter American nuclear retaliation? You have just used a nuclear weapon on US territory. Congratulations, you just bought yourself annihilation. Unless, what? <coughs> Unless you can do what? Or, or, the or the US homeland. So, enter Mr. Peanut. Another mock-up. So this mock-up comes in September 2017, hours before a 200 kiloton underground test at Pungeri, the test site. So clearly, this is just a mock-up. We don't know if North Korea is capable of actually fielding a proper two-stage thermonuclear device. If anybody has questions about the, tech, the technicalities, we can talk about it. But basically, this is designed to signal that North Korea has either uh, a two-stage thermonuclear device like this or something bigger, maybe a boosted fission device. The yield itself at Pungeri doesn't mean anything. It could be a boosted fission device. It could be a two-stage thermonuclear device. But they clearly want to signal they have a thermonuclear weapon. We don't know if they do, but they wanted to signal that this was the case. So hours before they test the 200 kilotons at Pungyi, they released this picture. And everyone's like, oh, that's a nice picture. And then they actually tested it. 
So from a decade, 2006 to 2017, North Korea tested six nuclear weapons in sequence and went from a joke of a nuclear weapons program to a thermonuclear, a purported thermonuclear weapons capability. Now India and Pakistan had also tested five or six nuclear weapons, depending on how you count them. But the difference between India and Pakistan tests and North Korea's is India and Pakistan did them virtually simultaneously, which means you can't learn from and improve the designs. The North Koreans spaced them out over a decade, and they've clearly learned over the years how to improve their designs. And so for a regional power, North Korea withstood American pressure over the years and you know, it was already being sanctioned the hell out of. So sanction me if I test a nuclear weapon. You can't really do any, any worse. So by September 2017, North Korea has a thermonuclear weapon capability. Then the question is, how do you deliver it? In a lot of ways, the missiles are harder than the nuclear weapons. This is a picture of the Hwasong-14 ICBM. The first time it was tested was on July 4th, Happy Independence Day. I lost that day writing about the damn Hwasong-14. Because it was the first ICBM test, actually, that a state had tested. India and Pakistan don't have ICBMs. The last state to test an ICBM was actually China in the 1960s. So this is a big deal because now you might be able to hold the US homeland at risk. So the Hwasong-14 is tested twice, actually. And then as soon as North Korea tests something, they loft these things, right, over Japan. So it's very provocative. But it's a lofted test, and the horizontal distance is only about 1,000 kilometers. And then the question is, well, what's the maximum range? And then there's a lot of debate as to how, how far can this actually fly on a minimum energy trajectory with a payload. And a lot of analysts said, well, you know, this one may, maybe can hit Seattle, San Francisco, Chicago, but it can't hit the eastern seaboard. <laughs> like all good autocrats, Kim Jong-un was working on the Hwasong-14 missile while they're working on this bad boy, the Hwasong-15. Now, if you compare the two, 14 and 15, what's the obvious difference between the two? At first, when they tested this in November, November 29th, I think, was the Hwasong-15 test. When they tested this, and it was a long, lofted trajectory in the air, you know, Twitter is great. Oh, in North Korea, you get the alert from the Japanese. It hits social media, and then you're timing it. How long is this thing in the air? How long is this thing in the air? Something like 50 minutes later, the reentry vehicle or the shroud comes back in, and there's a splashdown. The obvious difference between the, are these the same missile? Are these, is this a, an improved version of this? No, it's a completely different missile. This is a monster ICBM. It is like a US Titan missile. The Titans were what we use for space launches. And when you compare the two, it's actually not that much smaller. It is much bigger than the Hwasong-14. And the volume of this warhead, there were concerns here. Could you fit Mr. Peanut on there? Eh, maybe, maybe not. Can you fit Mr. Peanut in that? Yeah. You might be able to fit four Mr. Peanuts in there. So there's concern, maybe they're merving their missiles. Why would you want to merv it? Well, the US has missile defense, or is working on missile defenses, which don't work today, but the fear everyone has is they'll work tomorrow, or in 2030. This is a huge volume, this is a huge missile, and it is not a variant of the Hwasong-14. It is a brand new missile. And there was no doubt, everyone who was questioning whether Hwasong-14 could hit the US homeland, there was no doubt the Hwasong-15 could hit Mar-a-Lago which would be the farthest point, basically, on a minimum energy polar trajectory. 
So 2017 was Kim Jong-un's breakout year. You now have an ICBM capability. So now you see the theory of victory that they had signaled. They had actually signaled them with the map of doom their strategy long before they had the capability or tested, demonstrated the capability. Hold regional assets at risk, especially U.S. bases, in first use if the U.S. attacks, either threatens the regime or disarming North Korea, and then hold the ICBMs in reserve to deter American nuclear retaliation. Because are you willing to risk Los Angeles or San Francisco or Chicago or New York or Mar-a-Lago? At that point, are you just going to put a pause in the conventional invasion? Now, the French theory was that the Soviets would pause. And you can hold at risk. It was called proportional retaliation. The French wanted to be able to hold at risk <coughs> as much to the Soviets as France was worth. So by industrial, pop, industrial and, and population metrics, the hell was the population of France in the 30 million maybe? 60 million back then? So basically, France wanted to be able to hold at risk that much of the Soviet Union as France was worth. North Korea, it is not hard to hold at risk enough of the US as North Korea is not worth that much in terms of industrial and, right? So what's the, the theory of victory here is kind of this proportional retaliation. You don't have to be able to hold much at risk to get civilian presidents to say, okay, I'm not willing to risk an American city. And 200 kilotons doesn't have to be accurate. If it is truly a two-stage thermonuclear device, you can jack up the yield. Doesn't matter where on LA you drop this thing, you're gonna kill a lot of people and do a lot of damage. So this is kind of the theory of North Korean nuclear strategy. It's not completely irrational. In the world of nuclear strategy, this is about as rational as insanity gets. And so you hold at risk, and they've, to hold, they've told us the targets. Honolulu and San Diego are very easy to understand why. Why? You get a twofer. Sir, why? Submarines. Paycom. This is the bulk of the Pacific Fleet. Omaha is easy. Uh, I think that's DC, yes. Barksdale Air Force Base. That was an interesting. I don't know why Barksdale. Do you know why Barksdale? Well, I have a theory about this. Anyone? The, the bombers. Bombers are on it. Bombers. I think there's another reason too. It's also where President Bush landed during 9/11, and there's a there's a belief that it was trying to signal you're not safe anywhere. But Barksdale is an interesting one. I think the bombers are probably it's, there are equally plausible reasons. But they've also signaled San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge, my hometown. Go Giants uh, and Warriors, who got, gave up a 31-point lead last night. What's that? South Bend, South Bend is fine. Although, <laughs> radiation from Chicago would be a problem. Uh, s s New York City, uh, Putin, Putin had Mar-a-Lago, not North Korea. Uh, but So the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, these have all been signaled in various propaganda pieces as targets. But the basic point is North Korea wanted, you, wanted to signal, okay, we now have an ICBM capability. And the ability to hold the U.S. homeland at risk is the discontinuity. You can have this flurry of activity. Kim Jong-un, I think his theory was Trump is in office. He's crazy. I need to get to that ICBM capability as quickly as possible. If I can withstand the provocative missile testing without an attack and get to the end of it alive, then I can transform my relationship with the United States because I have a capability to hold the homeland at risk. Now, there are skeptics out there, reasonable skeptics. Oh, they haven't perfected the reentry vehicle. The reentry vehicle, does anyone care about this debate? I can walk through it very quickly. Okay, so the reentry vehicle, the problem, okay, you test it, sometimes it tumbles. 
Uh, have they perfected the heat shield on the re-entry vehicle? Well, there are certain heat shields you can use, like a steel plate, which impose a huge weight penalty on the warhead. But if you put one Mr. Peanut in here and then a big steel plate, you could probably still deliver this against the U.S. homeland. The problem of tumbling, does it really matter where you get your airburst? 200 kilotons, a couple megatons, still going to do a lot of damage. And how are they going to show if they get the re-entry vehicle, which is as the warhead re-enters over the target, how are they going to prove it? You know, there's only one way to prove it, and that's do an atmospheric nuclear test. And raise your hand if you want to see North Korea do an atmospheric nuclear test over the Pacific Ocean. Nobody wants to see that. I personally don't. I'm willing to take, look, how accurate, what percent chance are you willing to risk? If you say it's a 30% chance that their re-entry vehicle will survive and do some damage, are you willing to risk 30% chance of LA getting, you know, half of LA being destroyed? So this is where to turn, I think, you know, some, I'm a, I'm a theory of the nuclear revolution guy. At some point, plausible retaliation is often enough to change the political equation. So this is another picture. I mean, I'm a, I'm a tech, I came from the technical world. I love the, and the North Koreans have released some great pictures of this stuff. But this is, this is a terrifying missile. So this is where we stand at the end of 2017. And Kim Jong-un got there. He tested and demonstrated enough capability to fill out the nuclear strategy. On January 1st, every year, like every good communist state, Kim Jong-un does a New Year's Day address. Prior to January 18, North Korea's strategy was the dual, so-called dual line. We are going to develop our nuclear weapons and our economic capability. And his New Year's Day speech in 2017 was, this is the year we're going to complete our nuclear deterrent. We should listen to what Kim Jong-un says on his New Year's Day speech because he's basically telegraphed exactly what he's going to try to do that year. January 1st, 2017, he says, this is the year we're going to complete our nuclear deterrent. January 1st, 2018, we have completed our nuclear deterrent. And now we're going to mass produce them. Why do you need to mass produce them? Because you're worried about survivability. You want more of these. So you want as many ICBMs, as many short range missiles, as many nuclear warheads as you can get. As you can get. And the estimate at the beginning of 2018 was that North Korea had somewhere, depending on whether you believe the CIA or the DIA estimates, short end, high end, 20 to 60 nuclear weapons. And there are technicalities as to why the gap is so large. <coughs> Blended pits, et cetera. But 2018, the strategic direction is we have now completed our strategic nuclear deterrent. We're going to focus on our economy. That is our strategic objective. And mass produce our ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons. This strategic directive has not been overturned. So when anyone says they're denuclearizing or they're disarming, this is still happening. The nuclear weapons research sector and the rocket industry, this is the, the official translation. I don't speak Korean, but the official translation. The nuclear weapons research sector and the rocket industry should mass produce nuclear warheads and ballistic missiles, the power and reliability of which have already been proved to the full. So he's signaling, I don't need to test anymore. So when he imposed a missile testing moratorium and a nuclear testing moratorium, it's because Kim Jong-un himself believes they don't need to test to prove it anymore. To give spur to the efforts for deploying them for action. This is the official translation. We should always be ready for nuclear counterattack. That's about command and control. I've done some thinking about North Korean command and control. It's really scary. Uh, if anyone uh, wants to talk about it, just ask me in Q&A. 
this is this January 1st, 2018. Right after this, Kim Jong-un starts putting his nuclear weapons into action for political purposes. What does he do? Starts the decoupling process. The charm offensive. First thing he does, go to Beijing. He has to repair his relationship with Xi Jinping, who he has not met once since he came into office. He killed his half-brother, who was the liaison to Beijing. He killed his uncle, who was Xi Jinping's favorite in Pyongyang. He goes to Beijing. He sends his sister to the Olympics in South Korea. Remember the Pyeongchang Olympics in 2018? So he starts the decoupling process because he has, Kim Jong-un probably cannot believe his luck. He's got President Moon and President Trump in office at the exact same time. And President Moon and the Liberal Party in South Korea has long wanted, you know, the inter-Korean process to pick up pace and, you know, seek coexistence at least, if not peace, with North Korea. And so President Moon was very receptive. I love this picture because they're laughing at a $100 bill, probably a counterfeit note. Because Kim Jong-un was actually expert at producing super notes. That's how they made a lot of cash. And, you know, you get these pictures and you're thinking, man, this, it's good to be a nuclear weapons state. He is now confident. He goes to Xi Jinping. They have, they have a summit, uh, one in Beijing, one, I'm trying to remember the, the coastal town, uh, Dali, I forget where it was, where they had a, a second meeting. The Olympics start the decoupling process. There's the Panmunjom summit in early 2018. And so already you're seeing the political benefits of having nuclear weapons. You're peeling South Korea off the alliance in a lot of ways, right? Because President Moon's agenda is if we can reach a peace accord with North Korea, we may not need U.S. forces on the peninsula. They're only there because there's still a technical state of war with North Korea. And this suits Kim Jong-un just fine, right? U.S. forces off the Korean peninsula as the end state means an end to the so-called hostile policy and he has achieved his objective both politically and militarily if he decouples the South Koreans off the U.S. formal alliance and gets U.S. forces off the peninsula. Oh, yeah, forget. there's a, another party here, Japan. So Japan is actually the odd state looking out, freaking. I mean, Japan is legitimately freaking out. I made a trip to Tokyo. Uh, had a lot of meetings with their government, the NSS and, the, and MOFA, and their fear was that Kim Jong-un decoupling South Korea from the U.S. alliance will make their military position much more complicated. They doubled down on the alliance with the United States. You know what the Japanese fear was? Trump wouldn't. They were terrified that Trump would just give away the farm for nothing. They see Trump saying alliances cost money, <coughs> talking about how much the exercises cost, for the first time, I got a sense that the Japanese were not as allergic to the idea of their own nuclear weapons as they have been in the past, despite public opinion against it. So Japan was and is, I still think, freaking out. And so decoupling has a real cost here. And President Trump may be receptive to some of this in a lot of ways. If you think alliances are burdens and there isn't enough burden sharing and South Korea isn't paying its fair share, not only do you have a moon that wants to move away from the United States, you may have a Trump that's willing to let him go. And the Japanese diagnosis of this phenomena is we could be next. So then you set up, this is my favorite picture, Dennis Rodman's. 
This is a real tweet. Photoshop MAGA hat on Kim Jong-un. And they go, they set up the June 12th summit in Singapore. Kim Jong-un at this summit achieved what no North Korean leader before him had been able to do, which is what? What did he do that not, neither his father nor his grandfather before him could do? Shake hands with the U.S. president as an equal. There were an equal number of North Korean flags interspersed with uh, American flags shaking the hand of the U.S. president. Now, I'm not opposed to talking to your adversaries, but this was an objective of the nuclear weapons program, and he's being treated as an equal. President Nixon referred to North Korea as a fourth-rate pipsqueak power, and here he is shaking hands with the U.S. president. And it's only because he has nuclear weapons. Like I said, it's good to be a nuclear weapons power. This is often why the United States expends a lot of energy to stop adversaries from getting nuclear weapons. Now you can say, well, we can live with this. <coughs> the the, you compare the joint statements after Singapore. This is very small print, but basically the bottom line, the Sports Center version is, this is the agreed framework, sorry, the agreed framework, the six-party talks joint statement from 2006, where the DPRK, in writing, committed to abandoning all nuclear weapons and existing nuclear programs and returning at an early date to the NPT, putting things under IEA safeguards. The U.S. gave it a security guarantee, right? This is, what it, this is the agreement in 2006. Singapore is a watered-down version of that. The United States commit to establishing new relations, lasting and stable peace regime on the Korean Peninsula. Point number three is the DPRK commits to work toward complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. That is a weaker statement than the DPRK committed to abandoning all nuclear weapons and existing nuclear programs and returning an early date to the NPT and putting everything under IAEA safeguards. So everyone hailed the Singapore summit as, well, everyone. President Trump and the Trump administration hailed the Singapore statement as peace in our time. North Korea agreed to give up its nuclear weapons. Secretary Pompeo to this day will say, Kim Chairman Kim agreed to complete disarmament at Singapore, both verbally and in the agreement. That is categorically false. What they agreed to was complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And we'll talk about the 31 flavors of denuclearization in a minute. But right now there is such a wide gap between our version and definition of denuclearization and the North Korean version. This slide is only to say that the summit in Singapore did not have as extensive or stringent language as previous agreements North Korea had signed and violated. So since Singapore then, North Korea claimed to take those denuclearization steps. Anyone know what the picture on the left is? This is the Pungiri test site. So they blew the entrances, the tunnels, to the, to the test site. Now, and this is a picture of their missile test site. So Kim Jong-un had self-imposed a moratorium on nuclear and missile testing. And then they blew the entrances, just the tunnels, to the deep cavities dug into this mountain at Pungye-ri, and they took off the scaffolding at a missile engine test site. But the concrete 
slab where they used to test the engine still stood. And there's a satellite launch stand there which they did not dismantle. So this is the entirety of the denuclearization steps that North Korea took after Singapore. None of this is disarmament, right? Because they were still, remember the January 1st, 2018 directive, mass producing their nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles. All the activity at the covert nuclear facilities, which aren't so covert since the Washington Post leaked where they were. And my friend uh, Ankit Panda, Jeff Lewis at um, CNS, they found the actual site. It's not that far outside of Pyongyang. So they have the declared facilities at Yongbyon, a nuclear reactor and enrichment facility there, which is declared and everybody, that's all they admit. And then they have at least one secret enrichment facility, probably a second, and then they have missile production sites. All the evidence suggests that activity continues at all of those, especially those outside of Yongbyon. So they blew a missile testing, uh, they took down an engine test site which you don't need to mass produce the missile or the engines. They closed the tunnels to the Pungye retest site, which they can reopen, by the way. They can just rebuild and redig the entrances and get to the main cavities again. But that doesn't stop them from mass producing nuclear weapons. They did all of that because Kim Jong Un himself said, I don't need to test anymore. I proved all my capabilities. Now, testing does stop them from maybe perfecting and improving some of their capabilities, but from a general sense, Kim Jong Un decided, I don't need to test anymore. So they blew their test sites, but still mass produce. So in the meantime, President Trump goes from, I mean, 2017, we forget, was I think we were actually pretty, you know, people say we weren't that close to war. I actually think there was serious discussion. There was probably, I believe, serious discussion about attacking North Korea or what would it look like if we had to in 2017. And Trump, you know, makes these threats, fire and fury, These are real. Kim Jong-un is a, a madman who doesn't mind starving and killing his people. He'll be tested like never before. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un just stated that the nuclear button is on his desk. I mean, these are threats by tweet. He will, will someone from his depleted and food-starved regime please inform him that I too have a nuclear button, but it's much bigger and worse. I mean, this is what we've been reduced to. The last one is fake. But when you first read, you know, you know these fake accounts can, uh, can start wars. Little Rocket Man will be, won't be bothering us for much longer. This is from uh, actually Jeffrey Lewis's book, The 2020 Commission. It's a really fun but terrifying pseudo-fiction uh, on the North Korean crisis. But so this is where we were. Trump himself went from this to the exact opposite, right? North Korea, Kim Jong-un is a tyrant to I fell in love with him after Singapore. He wrote me beautiful letters and we fell in love. So he went, did a complete 180. Now, in reality, there's something in between being a tyrant and being in love. I mean, you can be an adversary that you don't have to necessarily love. He does starve and kill his own people. Otto Wambier, I mean, this is still, these are still, uh, still a dictatorial regime. But President Trump himself has staked a personal relationship with Kim Jong-un, which in a lot of ways has complicated the process because, you know, they keep passing forth, the, you know, their pen pals, they write love letters to each other. To President Trump, Kim can do no wrong. And so what happened after Singapore? Kim Jong-un slowed, slow rolled the working level meetings. We know that they slow rolled, Secretary Pompeo wasn't able to meet with his counterpart. 
Steve Began was appointed and wasn't able to, they didn't appoint a counterpart until earlier this year because the North Koreans wanted to take their chance with Trump at a second meeting or they believed that Trump was totally fine with the fiction of disarmament. All of this suggests after Singapore, all these leaks came out, right? This is on the front page of the New York Times. President Trump even at one point, I think, said, we know what the North Koreans are up to. And if you're Kim Jong-un seeing this, you think, you know what? The Donald doesn't care if I don't give up my nuclear weapons and is willing to live with the fiction of disarmament so long as I don't test rockets and missiles. How many times did President Trump say, I'm satisfied as long as Kim Jong-un and North Korea does not test missiles and nuclear weapons? Footnote, because Kim Jong-un has decided he himself doesn't need to. So Kim Jong-un thought he's sitting pretty, right? So President Trump is saying, you can forgive Kim Jong-un for thinking that President Trump is in on the gig, uh, in on the, what is it, in on the gag? In on the fiction, whatever, in on the, He's in on the, on, the, on the play, right? That I don't have to give up my nuclear weapons. Trump isn't asking me to give up my nuclear weapons. He keeps saying as long as I don't test, he knows I'm still producing my nuclear weapons. The problem is the White House has a different view. The administration, and there's a, a, a group within the White House that has a different view, and they've very publicly said what that is. They believe that North Korea cannot be allowed to keep its nuclear weapons, period. It's not simply to acquire nuclear weapons to maintain the status quo. It's to change the status quo. And we cannot accept or coexist with a nuclear North Korea because one day they will use those nuclear weapons to aggress against the United States and the Korean Peninsula. So after Singapore and President Trump's love fest with Kim Jong-un and the White House view, which was opposed to President Trump, by the White House, I mean basically John Bolton. Because Trump says Kim Jong-un is taking meaningful denuclearization steps. And the deal was, if Kim was doing that, he was going to get sanctions relief. <laughs> but if Trump gave sanctions relief without actual meaningful disarmament, then Trump risked a split with his own administration. So a collision course was inevitable. Either Trump with Kim Jong-un if he didn't give sanctions relief, or Trump with his own administration if he did give sanctions relief. And a lot, I bet myself, because I'm not a real betting man, I bet myself that push comes to shove, I actually wasn't sure that, Kim Jong -un, that, that Trump wouldn't choose Kim Jong-un over John Bolton. John Bolton is expendable, but Kim Jong-un may not be, right? So in this collision course, I thought actually that Trump would go to the second summit at Hanoi and maybe actually reach a deal that recognizes North Korea or accepts North Korea as a de facto nuclear weapon state. Problem is, that's not what happened. Right before Hanoi, Steve Began, the special representative, gives a speech at Stanford where he says, the United States is actually open now, you know, to make progress, we're open to kind of an interim deal. We'll keep the long-term goal of denuclearization, kind of like not in our lifetime, Obama 20, 2009, if we all give up our nuclear weapons, maybe North Korea, we'll keep that as a long-term aspiration. In the short term, it is in American interest to slow the growth of the program first. So the United States has never accepted a nuclear weapon state outside of the NPT. India and Pakistan test in 1998, and US policy is cap, roll back, and eliminate. And we're 0 for 3, actually, with both countries. Both countries are still growing their nuclear arsenal. But we mainstreamed India, gave them a civil nuclear deal. They've joined all of these agreements, you know, Wassenaar Group, Australia Group. 
North Korea wants that. They want to be treated like India. Acquire nuclear weapons outside the NPT, be mainstreamed, and at least accepted and coexisted with a de facto, as a de facto nuclear weapon state. So this is what Kim Jong-un, I think, reasonably thought was going to happen at Hanoi. Steve Beacon gives a speech. He's like, basically slow cap roll back and eliminate was, a, was the proposed strategy at Stanford when Beacon gives a speech. And everyone thought that the deal, there was a deal, purported deal that was leaked a couple days before Hanoi that it would be Yongbyon verifiably dismantling the reactor at Yongbyon and probably the enrichment facility in exchange for some modest sanctions relief, blessing the inter-Korean process, uh, liaison offices, yada yada, peace declaration, which actually doesn't mean anything, but maybe as a prelude to a peace agreement. But then we get to Hanoi and Trump shoots for the whole enchilada, go big or go home. He puts in front of Kim Jong-un a piece of paper that says you give up all your nuclear weapons, disarm everything before, give up all your nuclear weapons, chem, bio, missiles, let us own your country before you get any sanctions relief. And you can imagine Kim Jong-un is like, what the, this is not what we agreed to. And uh, President Trump says we walked away. Some of the details afterwards suggested that Kim walked away. They say, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to surrender my nuclear weapons. Maximum pressure, the sanctions regime is, there's no air left in the maximum pressure campaign. The Chinese and the Russians have been basically undermining it since, since last June, since before last June. So Kim Jong-un is sitting pretty. Why should he, he's not going to surrender his nuclear weapons. There's no world in which he's going to surrender all of his nuclear weapons. Why? Because Bolton, so what we get in Hanoi is effectively... Bolton's idea of the Libya model, 2003. In 2003, we picked up Gaddafi's centrifuges, which he had bought from AQ Khan in Pakistan, and moved them to Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Literally picked up the program, brought it. This is what Bolton wants with the North Korean program. And the administration has this, I think, delusional timeline that we could do that in a year. I think it would take about five to 10 years. But the idea is we can pick up the entire North Korean nuclear program, move it to essentially the U.S. And so Bolton has this Libya model in his head in 2003. What's the problem with the Libya model, though? What happened to Gaddafi? He thought he got security guarantees. And in 2011, he was killed at the hands of U.S.-backed rebels. So when Bolton talks about the Libya model and means 2003, Kim hears Libya 2011 and thinks... Right? I'm not going to say it, but we're at a Catholic school. I used to get jugs for swearing. Did they have those here? Jugs, justices under God, there's detention. <laughs> the only ones I got were for swearing. Now my wife gives them to me. If, so the problem then is, okay, this Libya model doesn't work for Kim Jong-un. And Bolton has this idea of, look, okay, I, Part of me thinks this is an open question. I think this was Bolton's strategy the entire time. This is a poison pill. He did not think Kim Jong-un was going to you know, give up his nuclear weapons, so he was going to expose Kim at Hanoi. And he didn't want to relitigate Yongbyon. We have, we have litigated Yongbyon twice before, and the North Koreans have cheated. That is a perfectly reasonable view. In defense of the Trump administration and John Bolton's view on this, it would have been perfectly plausible to say, we'll give you something, but only after we verify that you have dismantled and disabled the reactor at Yongbyon. Let's pour concrete in the reactor. 
and the enrichment facility there slow the fissile material production. Getting the reactor close to Yongbyon shuts off their only supply of plutonium. That is a good thing if you're talking about shaping the future of the nuclear force. But John Bolton said, no, we're not going to do this. It's all or nothing. Trump loves the idea of a big deal, so go big or go home. Well, the North Koreans went home. The problem is, if this is John Bolton's view that you have to denuclearize them one way or another, and they are not going to surrender their nuclear weapons up front, he wrote before he became national security advisor, like a week before he became national security advisor, that the only alternative then is to denuclearize North Korea by force. And make no mistake, that's a counterforce strike on North Korea's several dozen to now probably 70 or 80 nuclear weapons. Lord knows how many production facilities and ICBMs. When the Obama administration did this assessment, it was they could get 80% of the known capabilities, forget the unknown ones, and if you have error bars on the known capabilities, somebody's going to probably eat a nuclear weapon. Now, Lindsey Graham says it doesn't matter, they're over there. Okay? You're banking a lot that they won't be able to get an ICBM off. This is Senator Graham. There is a military option to destroy North Korea's nuclear program, North Korea itself. If there's going to be a war to stop Kim Jong-un, it will be over there. If thousands die, they're going to die over there. They're not going to die over here. So Senator Graham, who is close to President Trump, seems to think that this is okay as long as it's the Japanese or the South Koreans that eat a nuclear weapon and not us. Well, how many U.S. forces are stationed in the region? Do we know approximately... More than that, in the region, Japan and South Korea. Japan, South, South and it's 50, and 50, 60,000. Yeah, and, and dependents, right? So it's not just going to be, they're going to be Americans that die over there too. So counterforce strike, you know, if you're talking about denuclearizing my force, this is not a, I don't, like I said, I'm not a betting man, but I wouldn't bet on this. This is not a sporting proposition. The concern is if you say, okay, I'm, uh, I'm attracted or seduced by the, this idea of a first strike, and we have missile defenses. President Trump, to Sean Hannity, said, very, we have missiles that can knock out a missile over the air 97% of the time. And if you send two of them, it's going to get knocked down. Now, this might be true for Aegis and for Th Aegis Ashore and Thad, our regional missile system, the defense systems, but for the national missile defense, our ground-based interceptors, we have missiles that can knock out a missile in the air. He said 97% of the time. Anyone know what the empirical intercept rate in controlled environments of our ground-based missile defense system is? It's higher. Not much higher. 57%. You need four interceptors to get the kill probability up to about 97%. We only have 44 deployed interceptors. It means 11 targets saturates the system. The other thing is you send four and you assume that the hit-to-kill probabilities are independent, right? It's shoot, look, shoot, kill. Shoot, look, shoot, sh look, shoot, look, hope you kill. Problem is, there's no guarantee that they're independent, right? If, you're, if your tracking is incorrect for one, it's probably incorrect for all four. So if you overestimate how successful and capable our national missile defense system is against ICBM targets, then you can quickly see how you might get into the misguided notion that a counterforce strike is a good idea. Right, so, and here's the wrinkle right now. Not only is there potentially, like if we end up in this world where we say we are not going to live with a nuclear North Korea or accept or coexist with nuclear North Korea and they're unwilling to give it up and we get back to 2017, the crisis where you know, they're shooting missiles off, 
North Korea has rebuilt the test site. They have taken activity they know that we are picking up on purpose. They have signaled they have a missile or a satellite launch vehicle that they are ready to test at any minute. They, what, he's, he's loaded his gun, basically, but he hasn't fired yet. Kim Jong-un isn't stupid. But he signaled, I can go back to this. And you really, President Trump, do you really want to go back to this? The problem is, not only could we get back to this world where the temperature goes back up, but North Korea can't be confident in survivability. It's a small nuclear force against a massive U.S. conventional nuclear force that has persistent ISR that's going to come after everything. If you're Kim Jong-un, you have very significant use them or lose them concerns. So even the hint at a high temperature in a crisis, any hint that the U.S. is coming after you, you may not have a choice. But you have to go from peacetime centralization to firing your weapons to get them off before they're lost. Use them or lose them very quickly. So if you think about the logic that Kim Jong-un has in terms of command and control, we may not have a lot of time. And all he has to do is misperceive. You know, we run these B-1s, which are not nuclear capable, but he thinks they are, up to the NLL, the, the naval limit line, all the time. And he knows it's to desensitize him. One day, just left turn. That's how it's going to start. Or it'll be, you know, surprise attack. So right now, we're kind of at a peacetime. He doesn't think Trump is going to do this. But if we get to a world where Bolton is talking about military action, Graham is talking about military action, and the temperature goes back up, you've got survivability concerns coupled with misperception. And you can very quickly get into a very scary world. And so where do we go from here, right? At heart is this discrepancy between the def on the definition of denuclearization. We have not yet reached a common definition of what denuclearization in the Korean Peninsula means. When Secretary Pompeo two days ago was asked by the Senate, have we, do we have a, reached an agreement, you know, do we have a common understanding of denuclearization? He said, I can say neither, I'm not going to say yes or no, and that means no, basically. So the DPRK's definition is denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, and that phrase is used very intentionally because that means U.S. assets out of the region. That means US, maybe U.S. forces, certainly strategic assets, nuclear-capable assets in Guam. I don't know how we would verify SSBNs, but they certainly mean no nuclear weapons anywhere near the peninsula. And it probably means the U.S. forces off the peninsula entirely. Well, that's a very different definition than the United States. We went from CVID. Anyone know what CVID stood for? Griff? Irreversible. Nope. No, what's the D? Nope. Everyone gets this wrong because the, the Trump administration gets it wrong also. It's dismantlement. Dismantlement. Complete, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement of the North Korean nuclear program. CVID. At Singapore, before Singapore, there were reports that came out that the North Koreans said, take CVID and shove it where the sun don't shine. And so we came up with FFVD. We went to a thesaurus. No joke. I'm pretty sure this is how we got here. We went to this. Oh, you don't like CVID. We're going to go to final, fully verified denuclearization of North Korea. So when Secretary Pompeo goes in front of the Senate and says CVID, FFVD is the same thing as CVID, it's because they have this conception. They just changed the acronym. They basically went to thesaurus. I don't think we get another round at coming up with uh, synonyms for CVID because I can't think of anything else.
that comes close to it. So the, the problem is that we are we have a very a fundamentally different view. This means unilateral surrender and disarmament of North Korea before sanctions relief. So there is a, a scoping issue about what denuclearization means. We mean unilateral disarmament. They mean denuclearization of the whole Korean Peninsula, which imposes obligations on us. There's also a sequencing problem. The sequencing problem is North Korea wants us to go first. They said, we've taken denuclearization steps. Where is my sanctions relief? And we, probably rightfully so, say, you have to take real disarmament steps before you get sanctions relief. We've litigated Yongbyon a couple too many times for us to say, we're going to give you full sanctions relief to effectively subsidize your program, which is what the administration view is. Trump, for a while, was, you know, had a whole different view. Denuclearization by denial. I'm just going to put my head in the sand. And that worked fine for Kim Jong-un. So Hanoi was, a, <coughs> Hanoi was a, a, a shock, I think, to the system for Kim Jong-un. Because when I call it the Hanoi holdup, that's a trademark, by the way. <laughs> uh, Kim Jong-un thought that he was going to go there and be, you know, it was going to ratify his status as a de facto nuclear weapons power. He had every reason, I think, to believe that based on the public pronouncements. And he shows up and is being said, yeah, give me the keys to your nuclear kingdom. And he's like, no, that's not what we agreed to do. And so where to from here? This is the last slide, and then I'll stop. So one view is that Trump still actually doesn't care if North Korea disarms. In a lot of ways, I think this might, you, you know, the rhetoric now, even yesterday, where Trump says in this word salad he gave at his rally, you know, Kim Jong-un Jong and I still have an excellent relationship. We'll see. I'm not in a rush. They're not testing rockets. We got our remains back. None of that is saying I want him to give up all his nuclear weapons. He at times has said, look, it means he's vacillated a little bit. And I think maybe he's either confused or he hasn't made a, a, a decision himself as to whether the Bolton model will get North Korea back to the negotiating table. The other view is, look, we're not going to play this piecemeal game. We need a big deal or we go home. And if, if, if we go home, we probably, you know, if, the, if North Korea is not willing to give up its nuclear weapons, we cannot, uh, we cannot accept. Remember, Washington is allergic to accepting any nuclear weapon states because of the precedent issue. You know, it does constrain our freedom of action. But there's really no precedent for a state unilaterally disarming and giving up its nuclear weapons, except for South Africa, which is a completely different a, a completely different case, and for domestic political reasons. As long as the Kim regime is in power, the idea or the notion that he would just unilaterally give, there's no, there's no theory or basis for why he would give up a, a capability that ensures his survival, especially after the Gaddafi experience, especially after Iraq. And the other problem is, you know, there's a policy dis, uh, dysmorphia in, in Washington, D.C., because at the same time that Kim Jong-un is shaking President Bush, uh, President Bush, President Trump's hand and being treated like an equal after he acquired nuclear weapons, President Trump is making threats against Iran. And Iran looks at this and says, man, it's good to be a, a nuclear weapons power. It is great to be a nuclear weapons power. Kim Jong-un is getting love letters and the Iranian regime is getting death threats. So there's that level of inconsistency. The other inconsistency is if you're Trump, 
you need a nuclear deal with North Korea that is better than the one you tore up with Iran also. You're not going to get much better than the JCPOA with North Korea. So there's this kind of schizophrenia in, Ameri in policy. And this is kind of the challenge. You know, I don't have any good answers. If I did it, I wouldn't be here. I'd be in DC probably. And they say, oh, go solve North Korea. No one has any good answers to this. This is a hard problem to solve. But the central challenge is you have a, a state that got out of the barn. It has a very clear nuclear strategy. It can hold plausibly the US homeland at risk. And there's one view, which is, OK, we can't live with this. They have to give up their nuclear weapons entirely before we do anything. The other view, which is my view, is, look, this is why you spend all this time trying to keep states from getting out of the barn. But once they do, you have to live with them. They're not going to give up their nuclear weapons voluntarily or surrender them. And getting rid of their nuclear weapons by force probably means somebody is going to eat a nuclear weapon, including a lot of US forces and dependents, if it's, even if it's over there. And so working on arms control, if the North Koreans are game, is the door we should put, be pushing on. Continuing to push on this door of unilateral disarmament, surrendering your nuclear weapons is going to get us nowhere. It'll take us back to 2017 without any diplomatic off-ramps. We just tried this leader-to-leader -leader summit stuff. You cannot have another Hanoi. They can, the President Trump and, and Chairman Kim cannot meet again where nothing comes out of it. And Chairman Kim, will not, Kim Jong-un, will not agree to anything that involves him unilaterally surrendering all of his nuclear weapons up front. So where do you go? Work on slowing the program first. There are real benefits to be gained by shutting off the plutonium production. Maybe their only indigenous source of tritium, which is important for thermonuclear weapons. Constraining their future force. Transforming the relationship. Does it set a precedent? Unfortunately, yes, but this is the world we live in. And I'm a realist. They're there. You can't get rid of them, so you have to coexist with them. Uh, shore up your alliances so you don't incentivize South Korea and Japan from pursuing nuclear weapons. There are policy options out there that are not being pursued. And right now, we're back on a renewed collision course. Unless we push on the doors you know, of like an interim deal, step by step, going big or going home is going to put us right back on a path uh, to a crisis with North Korea. So I will stop there, and I'm looking forward to your discussion, questions, whatever you have about anything. We've got uh, 22 minutes. Of I can stay later if anyone else wants to also. With your questions, and I'll keep the list of who's first. You're first. Yeah, thanks for the fascinating talk. So I don't work on this, I work on insurgency, so this is just like a Layperson question, but what is the role of other powers like China in this? I think they have China is one of them, like indirectly they provide some kind of support to North Korea. But in terms of nuclear weapons, did they ever provide any support or actually sanction North Korea? And secondly, I want to link it to I think you previously theorized that how different states need uh, develop nuclear weapons. I mean, it's like hedging, sprinting, hiding, sheltered pursuit. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think? This is a sheltered pursuit case. This is, this is more like, because there are, it seems like the hinting that North Korea is hiding. Well, a little bit, and then more like sheltered pursuit under the part of it. Initially, sheltered pursuits with the Soviets, but the Chinese-North Korean relationship, those are linked. The Chinese-North Korean relationship is very odd. And Kim Jong-un in particular ripped the relationship with Beijing when he came into power. He was not Beijing's preferred successor to his father. And he needed to establish his independence. And he did that by killing all of Beijing's, particularly his uncle and his half-brother, in brutal ways. I mean, I think they used, I mean, there's a report that he fed his uncle the dogs. I think he actually used anti-aircraft fire 
Uh, and then with his half-brother at Kuala Lumpur Airport, KUL. I mean, Malaysian aviation had a rough couple of years. And the, he used VX slapped on his face at like a def effectively the Hudson News equivalent. And there were like kids around. Like we're really lucky actually, he's really lucky. That's a weapon of mass destruction on foreign soil. And all of that was a signal to Beijing, I'm, I'm my own person. He tested the thermonuclear device on the same day that Xi Jinping was giving a keynote speech to the BRICS summit. And it embarrassed Kim, uh, Xi Jinping tremendously. And so a lot of the charm offensive was to repair the relationship with Beijing. The, shel the shelter and the assistance that North Korea got was actually from the Soviet Union. Russia and the Soviet Union were much better allies with North Korea than China was. But China is the, is the bordering state. And so where China has been really important is the black market trade. And so the U.S. had max the maximum pressure campaign on. China got on board because when Trump came into office, Xi Jinping was really pissed off at Kim Jong-un. And... They were, you know, there was, they were trying to get Beijing on board for a trade deal also, and vice versa. And so China came on board maximum pressure for a few months. But year-on-year -year trade now shows that Russia and China have taken all the air out of maximum pressure. They're, they're basically violating the, I'm not a sanctions person, but my understanding is the black market trade between Russia and China is, is greater than it was even prior to 2017. And it's very difficult to then unilaterally enforce sanctions ourselves while it's being undermined by Russia and China. So, you know, China was really important, I think, in that regard, not necessarily in terms of nuclear, in terms of nuclear assistance. But China's preferred outcome here is a, a, a North Korea that keeps its nuclear weapons. China's had a very relaxed view of proliferation over the years. Remember, it basically gave the bomb to Pakistan. And it did facilitate, actually, I take this back, it did facilitate the centrifuges for missile trade between Pakistan and North Korea in 1997. China, I mean, the Pakistani military transport aircraft overflew Chinese airspace. So China was certainly involved with that, that trade. But I think China prefers a North Korea that has nuclear weapons as a buffer against Western forces, but which doesn't test and embarrass it. So this is kind of the perfect situation for them. And it's a thorn in, for every minute that Kim Jong-un is a thorn in President Trump's side or occupies real estate in his brain, is less time that Trump spends on China. It's a good distraction for them, geopolitically. Wow, it was a fascinating overview, Vipin. Um, <clears throat> I wonder, though, if um, we're thinking about what North Korea is doing, um, you know, sort of in our way of thinking about nuclear strategy, and we're not thinking enough about the, uh, the politics of it. And the politics of it, it seems to me, could be um, that he thinks about uh, nuclear capability in much the same way as the Chinese I agree with about it. it. No, I agree with that. I think they're a TNR state. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, given that, the, the game is over. Um, as you pointed out, yep. uh, he's established the proof of concept <laughs> Um, and, you know, he probably has uh, enough, you know, real capability that, um, you know, it's eliminated uh, any uh, option for a preemptive strike. Um, and now it's, uh, you know, it's a uh, question of playing out the, uh, the diplomatic endgame. Um, I agree with that completely. I think also what we're seeing is a rerun of what happened with China. China tests a weapon in 64. Nixon goes to China in 71, right? 
China acquired nuclear weapons to get the space to pivot away from Soviet Union and become basically a neutral party in the Cold War. North Korea, in a lot of ways, and we're not, I'm back to Schiff's question, I actually think in a lot of ways North Korea acquired nuclear weapons to also get independence from China. Independence from China and become basically a neutral independent power against the United States. And it's, there's no doubt that Kim Jong-un would, needs to boost his economy. And inter-Korean trade is really important to that. So this buys him the space to do that. And I think we should give it to him because it, it's too costly. And what does it cost us? The only, the argument in Washington, Washington's allergy is if we cave to this political strategy and give up the South Korean alliance with a peace agreement with North Korea, it sets a terrible precedent for our allies in Europe and with Japan. I said, okay, maybe, but you can manage that. You have to manage that at this point. There are ways to manage, a precedent doesn't have to be prohibitive, I think is kind of the, the, the argument you have to make. Yeah, and it, just to, you know, sort of put a finer point on it, just, you know, to be a little bit provocative, but the, isn't part of the problem that we're, we're in a world in which, um, or at least in a case with North Korea, where uh, preventing proliferation is gone. As you said, the horse is, is out of the barn. Yeah, and so, a preventive attack. When that what you're trying to prevent has already happened. That's just a war. Okay, so most of the, then, and, and I'm thinking about your critique of the uh, uh, intellectual community in your uh, other paper in terms of, you know, failure to yeah. sort of predict what's happening. But maybe isn't there an additional failure where the part of the additional failure is the, that we think that this is still a uh, prevention of proliferation problem Rather than that, can be, that can be managed. So uh, it can't be managed. It's, uh, it's basically a fact. So then, you know, the, the, the real problem or the real debate is between, on the one hand, the handful of people like John Bolton who would talk openly about putting the horse back in the barn yeah. militarily, right. or the position of what I think the president's view is, which, uh, you know, he's not going to do anything about it. He'd love to, you know, to try to spin a deal out of it, yep. but I, I don't see any, um, you know, any uh, real fire in his belly for uh, for fixing this problem. It just doesn't seem like a, a, a winning situation. So. I agree. That, I, I was very optimistic pre-Hanoi because the president seems like, I'm happy to play this game with you, Kim. Like, We'll call your denuclearization steps disarmament, and we'll just normal we'll normalize this now. Look, I'm not going to start a war with you. That's where I thought we were going. And so Hanoi was actually a real shock, I think, for those of us that were following it very closely. And uh, I, you know, her vegan speeches, read it with a fine tooth comb. They do background calls on a couple of these, and it, it seemed like this was the momentum. And they show up, and it's very clear. Bolton got in his ear, said, "Go big or go home." He had 16 hours on the plane. Began was already in Hanoi. Pompeo was already, I think Pompeo also came aboard too because Pompeo is so sick of dealing with North Koreans. And he got stood up a couple times and I think he's probably sick of Korean food at this point. I don't know what the problem is. But Pompeo seems to have done a 180 also. Pompeo I thought was kind of on Team Began. But, uh, you know, some, at some point between, you know, the Stanford speech was just a, like a week before the Hanoi, week or two before the Hanoi summit. It seemed like all systems were go for, you know, the, the 
Yom Bion for inter-Korean <coughs> trade, which is great. I think that's a fantastic deal at this point. You're not going to get much better. And every day that passes without this big deal is a day that North Korea gets a bigger nuclear weapons force. And over time, every month that goes by is basically one new nuclear weapon. And it gives them more leverage, and it makes any sort of deal less likely. Gene, you're shaking your head. You get one shaking head. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, Monica? Awesome. Yeah. So, building on some of your final comments there, I'm curious how you would say the U.S. could um, accept North Korea as a de facto nuclear state while simultaneously trying to maintain um, pressure on other states like Iran or in the future maybe Saudi Arabia of being a state that wants to well, We're helping Saudi Arabia get nuclear weapons. So. <laughs> we are. Um, be, so how can we convincibly be a state that like upholds NPT and wants to stop adversaries and maybe even allies from yeah. pursuing nuclear weapons while also kind of taking off what you said that like we can't stop North Korea from proliferating or from be, being like an accepted nuclear state? It's a very good question. I mean, in a lot of ways, we blew that precedent out of the water with India. And India and Pakistan never signed the NPT. So I think our stat, our, our, what ends up happening, we look hypocritical in this way. Right? So India doesn't sign the NPT, Pakistan doesn't sign the NPT, we have this cap rollback eliminate strategy, then September 11th happens. First we normalize with India right away in 2000. Then they get the nuclear deal. Pakistan we essentially accept after September 11th because we need Pakistan. So these are two countries outside the NPT. Oh, and Israel, right? So, you know, a lot of countries look at the US and say, well, you've already blown this precedent out of the water. The difference with North Korea, and this is, I think, a real... I don't know, this might be, uh, this is a half-baked answer to your question, so it's not, I don't have my thoughts fully formed on this, but North Korea is one of the, would be the first state that cheated on the NPT because they took advantage of the bargain, then withdrew in 2003. I'm going to get the date wrong, but I think that's right. Withdrew. Right, so they took advantage of the bargain, and the NPT, look, and then you say, okay, now you're rewarding a state that like, took advantage of the bargain, got nuclear weapons, and then you're ex basically accepting it. It's not clear to me the NPT regime could handle more without the, the non-proliferation regime really being under threat. So if Iran did the same thing, I can see the argument if Iran does the same thing. On the one hand, we're incentivizing Iran to do this. We're doing everything wrong with Iran in my view, right? You're pulling out of the JCPOA, you're treating North Kim Jong-un like he's not a, a tyrant. And uh, you know, they've, they've stayed within their lane for now, but, you know, at some point, and we're provoking Iran by giving Saudi Arabia nuclear technology that may or may not be under, you know, the additional protocol. So you can forgive Iran for saying, like, what is you know, this kind of hypocrisy? What incentive do we have? They're, the only incentive, I think, is the European partners are still in it and are willing to work with Iran. But uh, that's a completely half-baked answer. Not really good. I don't know the answer to that question because we could say, look, we can do it a couple more times. But there are only so many times you can do this before... The, the non-proliferation regime itself starts to buckle, especially for, for those that took advantage of the bargain and were signatures and were given a clean bill of health by the, by the IEA. So it's a very good question to which I don't have a good answer. Uh, so what was the incentive for North Korea to abandon its stated goal of reunification of the Korean Peninsula? My understanding, that is the cultural reason for the North Korean people still propping up the 
Yeah. Uh, Kim regime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Why yeah, I mean, there, 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 there's, there's physical reunification, and that may be like the 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 ideological endpoint, but there's also kind of soft cultural reunification. I think inter-Korean trade and opening the links between the two is is kind of that. You know, you can have a co coexistence between North and South without each overtaking the, their political regimes. And I think realistically, that's kind of Kim Jong-un's endpoint. Now, they may have an ideological aim to reunify physically the peninsula, but, you know, I think that's where we would draw the line also. And the South Koreans would draw the line. So at this point, I think for his own people's, the, you know, the future of his economy, it would be sufficient. And the, the, the short-term goal of these seems to be an inter-Korean process that allows the North Korean economy to grow and reunify links between North and South uh, rather than a physical reunification. Although if there was physical reunification, he's got the nukes. So, you know, it would be under North Korean rule, presumably. Great. Mr. Well, thank you for the informative presentation. And uh, I have some problem with your presentation. One aspect is missing. It's a political economy side. And militarily, I agree. I agree that uh, effect, preemptive strike is not effective. You know, who don't know where they're hiding. But the South Korean strategy is that North Koreans are really desperate countries. People are starving. And that's why Moon Jae-in is opening to right encourage middle class try to yeah. Yeah. You know, instill idea of the democracy. I think in the long term, that's the only way we can do it. Also, I don't think a Kim Jong-un regime can survive. Yeah, I, mean, I don't, I, I, I don't disagree. I'm following the Japanese underground papers. There's a lot of underground disturbance by the young officers. Mm. They are starving to death. You know, you cannot have a regime where the uh, what is it? Hundred thousand Korean citizens live in a paradise. Yeah. Rest of the country is stunning. Yeah. It's not unsustainable enough. We don't have to worry about military issues. Yeah, no, I think that's. I don't disagree with that. I think that that, that is. That's why there's a lot of urgency for the inter-Korean process from the South, because. Also, if you're South Korea, you don't want to deal with the North Korean collapse. Yeah, I mean. No comment on that, but yeah, I mean, I think that's that's probably right too. Yes. <coughs> if we were to to randomly strike North Korea, do they have the command and control? That if we got Kim and maybe a couple of his generals on the first hit, did the junior officers have the nuclear codes? Would they take the initiative to do it on their own without a direct order? My second question is, as a fellow graduate of an all-male Jesuit high school, uh, we also got judged for wising off and for excessive stupidity. And I was wondering if you uh, accept those reasons as a just spot with deterrent against the behavior of American high school students. <laughs> <laughs> it worked for me. I mean, your first question, I don't, we don't know the answer. Like, the, if I were designing, if I were Kim Jong-un designing my command and control system, I would want highly centralized control as a baseline. But I need the ability to sharply increase that to a ready force for at least some subset of it so that I give one order and like the, the force can be generated without any further orders and used without further orders. You talk about codes, I don't know. 
codes, there may be no codes. A lot of command and control for early nuclear states is component separation or demating. We don't know that the Chinese, I actually don't think the Chinese have codes on their nuclear states. The, the warheads are separate from the delivery season. Once they're put on a warhead, they're on a, on a missile, they're usable. So it may be that he just needs to give the order to the relevant parties to generate the force, and then it's usable. And I have to think that it takes, you know, it doesn't take much for him to say, okay, generate the force, and if you don't hear from me, or you think I'm gone up in smoke, a dead hand strategy would not be a, an irrational idea. But we don't know. I don't, I don't think there's enough evidence. To, command and control in all states is really, um, is a very closely guarded secret. I think the more I learn about US and Russian <laughs> command and control, and Indian command and control, and Pakistani, I get terrified. I mean, our system is designed to fail deadly. It's very difficult to stop an order. Was, I just did this thing with the producer of uh, Madam Secretary season finale, The Night Watch. Did you guys see, anyone see this? President has like three minutes to decide what, what to do. They realize it's a false alarm, you get the abort order, and one of the missile ears turns the key, and the other one hadn't yet, okay, fine. But does anyone know how many, v, like, we've got five flights of ICBMs of Minutemen in, uh, in any given missile squadron, five? I think it's five, anyone know? Am I right? You know how many, the, so 10 officers, you know how many keys have to be turned for all the missiles to be launched? Well, there are two answers to this, actually. Two out of five flights, so four officers will launch all of them. You just need two votes. The other is zero. You have an airborne command center that can override everything. So we, you know, our command and control is designed to fail deadly, and we, you know, we have some of the most robust, we have the most professional military, we also have the most robust command and control, uh, 1960s vintage, but it's still, you know, operable. And, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un, rickety command and control, can't be sure you're going to communicate with, and it needs to fail deadly in order to be a credible deterrent. If I were designing it, I would be very scared if, you know, if he thinks an attack is coming, you have to think that that force can be generated and used very quickly. So, yeah, another hypothetical for you. So, uh, it's January of 2021, and you get invited to the White House, and uh, there's a fresh face greeting you, and they ask... Uh, You're optimistic, huh? In the optimal office, <laughs> they ask, uh, how should we engage? I mean, I think uh, how I ended it, I mean, I think a lot of us who've been following it and writing about it, everything I've written, in the, you know, in the last couple of years has been, you've got to give up on disarmament and focus on arms control. Slowing the program has advantages. It shapes their future force. It makes it easier for them to manage. And also, we have a huge interest in North Korea not selling its nuclear technology. The less of it there is, the, the less they're able to sell. Shutting off plutonium. Now, you can, uh, there's a theory out there that the Yongbyon reactor is nearing the end of life and it's useless anyway. Okay, then it should be an easy deal to get. Right? And if it isn't nearing end of life and they're still getting plutonium out of it, then you're shaping the future force that they have. You've limited the amount of plutonium they have. Now, plutonium is really important for the thermonuclear devices. So is tritium. If you push them just into uranium, you have shaped the future possibilities that they have in terms of their nuclear force structure. This makes sense. I think that what I more mean is like, what is the type of language or what do you think the, the way of approach, the approach politically would be? I mean, I think, I mean, there was, in a lot of ways, the, I, I want to be fair to Trump. I think this idea that he had, like, as long as they don't test and we, if we can get a way to, you know, 
a, a small deal, first of all, is a small deal that has real material impact, but it also starts opening up channels of communication. And part of this is you want to you reduce miscommunication. We cooperated with the Soviet Union and Chinese throughout the entirety of the Cold War, right? You can have an adversarial relationship, but it's useful to have communication with your adversaries. If we go cold again, and the North Koreans are expert at going cold, you don't want to go cold with the North Koreans. They will ghost you till kingdom come. They can outlast us forever. Cho Sun Hui, their, you know, one of their chief negotiators, has been doing this for <coughs> over a quarter century now. She's better at this than any of, any of us. She knows how to do it. So keeping the channels, getting a small deal keeps the channels open. And that, for me, is the most important thing going forward, to reduce miscommunication, misperception. 40 seconds before 6.01. So Lisa. Um, yeah. Thanks. Um, in First Atlantic's classroom, Greg Kelly Greenhill's um, account of the North Korean uh, refugee, potential refugee yeah. crisis that could happen if there was a, a nuclear strike. But what also. do you think, if anything, China would be willing to do to prevent a humanitarian crisis on the North Korean-China border? I'm not even going to pretend to know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I assume we've, we've coordinated with the Chinese about securing the nuclear weapons. I don't know if China will close the border or let the refugees in. My guess is close the border, but that's a real humanitarian crisis then. South Koreans have to deal with it. I don't, I really, that's a, that's a scenario I don't like to think about because that is, that is a really bad scenario for a lot of people. Great. Well, let's thank Vipin very much. Thanks, Sal. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under sample swap. <laughs>